The second half of Ephesians started back in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so since we crossed the bridge into the second half of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, We've been talking about our walk as believers. In fact, uh, this morning's sermon is called Watch Your Walk because we are going to see several places in this text this morning that walk is an important theme. So uh, with that, hope you found Ephesians chapter 5. We are going to start reading. uh, Let's start reading in in verse 1 and we'll go through uh, verse 21. So would you read with me? Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light... It becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, it was very intentional that we began our service this morning with a call to worship from Ephesians chapter 1. In that chapter, as Paul starts off this letter, he unpacks the glorious grace of God. And we saw the the many blessings of God's grace that he's lavished on us if we have trusted in Jesus. The reason why it was intentional is because as we approach this text today, it's really important that we understand the grace of God. It's really important that we understand how the grace of God relates to the works that we do as believers. There's two ways that we can misunderstand grace and works. 
On the one hand, we can misunderstand that relationship by thinking that we have to do works in order to earn God's favor. But the Bible is very clear. You cannot possibly do enough on your own to earn God's favor. But the good news of the gospel is you don't have to. Jesus came to this earth. He lived the perfect life that we never could live. He died as our substitute. He rose again so that if we trust in him, through him alone, we can receive God's favor. Not because of good in us, not because of any work or any standard that we meet, but because we have placed our faith in the righteous Son of God, the one who died to forgive us of sins, who rose that we might have eternal life. If you have trusted in Jesus, you have 100% of God's favor, and it is no thanks to your works. It's all because of Jesus. The other way that we can misunderstand the relationship between grace and works, though, is to let God's grace make us feel like we have a license to sin now. It's the, the old um, adage from Romans 6, uh, shall we sin more that grace may abound? After all, I sin more, I get more of God's grace, right? But we have to understand that according to Scripture, the grace that saves us is also the grace that changes us. We saw back in Ephesians chapter 2 that God raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He raised us to life so that we would then live the new life, not so that we would just keep acting like a dead person. There's a life, a new life that we have been given in Christ to live. The grace that saved us is the grace that changes us more and more into the image of Christ, more and more into his image of holiness and righteousness. And so God's grace is never supposed to be a license for us to sin more. No, it's supposed to be the power that we tap into to live a life that honors this God who has saved us by his grace, to honor this God who we don't have to work to earn his favor. No, we work because we already have his favor. We work because we already have received his grace. And so as we look at today's passage, it's a call to holiness. It's a charge to to live in a way that looks like you've been saved, to live in a way that aligns with the change that Jesus has made in our hearts through the gospel. And if we misunderstand the relationship between grace and works, this text can either be a burden or something we just brush aside. But we don't need to be doing either one of those things. We should take this not as a burden as if we have to earn God's favor by doing these things, but no, because we have God's favor freely through the grace available to us in the gospel, these are are joyful things that we get to be a part of. And also, this is not something we should dismiss as if, ah, well, you know, God's God's covered me in grace. I don't need to take this too seriously. No, we, we should take these commands seriously because we want to be those who are shining like lights in the world, reflecting who our God is, the God who has saved us. So with that, let's dive into our text this morning and listen to Paul's call to watch your walk. We'll see this unfold in, at three different, um, in three different portions. 
First, he'll tell us to walk in purity, then to walk in light, and then to walk in wisdom. So first, walk in purity. Look with me at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Sexual immorality and impurity, these terms together form a a catch-all term that includes anything that is outside of God's perfect design for sex. God designed sex for the covenant of marriage, a commitment before God and man between one man and one woman for life. He intended sex for procreation and for pleasure. He intended sex to be self-giving, not self-serving. And ultimately, he intended sex, intends sex, to glorify him as it reflects the love between Christ and the church. And anything that distorts this, that adds to it, takes away from it, is sexual immorality, impurity. Anything outside of God's design is uh, what falls into these, into these categories. And then look at this term, covetousness. It's not only the external actions of sexual immorality and impurity that we should not be engaging in. No, even at the heart level, we have to watch out for sexual immorality. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, starting in verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Sexual immorality and impurity are not only external things that we have to watch out for. We have to look out for the covetousness that desire for something that doesn't belong to us or someone that doesn't belong to us. And in some cases, you know, it it can be a really clear uh, thing that we watch out for, but sometimes there's just a hint of that covetousness in our hearts that we need to watch out for. A hint of covetousness can look like just a fleeting thought of, I I wonder if, or it can look like, maybe just lingering a little bit too long looking at an attractive person. Or it can maybe just be a a simple fleeting thought of, I wish my spouse was more like. And what the Bible teaches us is that those things, the internal and the external, are things that are not proper for us. They, he says, must not even be named among you in this verse. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. These are things that we shouldn't engage in. These are things that we shouldn't let into our hearts or into our lives. But not only that, they should not even be named among us. There shouldn't be a hint of these things among us. We, We should be careful even how we speak of such things. Why? Because it's not proper for these things to be named among saints, Paul says at the end of this verse. Saints. Did you know? That you're a saint if you have trusted in Jesus? That if you have trusted in Jesus, he has not only saved you from the penalty of sin, but he has set you apart for holiness. That's what it means to be a a saint. The word saint has this idea of holiness built into it. 
If you belong to Jesus, he has set you apart to be his saint, to reflect his character. And as saints, saved by the grace of Jesus, set apart for holiness, there are certain things that are just not proper among us. There are certain things that just should not be named among us. If Jesus has made us saints, then we ought to live like saints. We need to be careful to not let a hint of these things among us, and we need to be careful how we even speak about such things. Look at verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You know, laughter is a gift from God. I'm grateful for humor. I'm grateful for that part of human experience. But there are certain things that we as saints should not joke about. There are certain things that we as saints should not laugh at. Crass jokes, dirty humor, double entendres, sexual innuendo. These, these are things that are not proper for saints. And let's be honest, this, in this culture that we live in, this is hard. I mean, just when it comes to entertainment, I, you know, it's really hard for me, I'll confess, because I love comedy. I love stand-up comedians. I love sitcoms. I love funny movies. But you can't find anything these days that doesn't engage in this. And, and it's sad for me to think about how often I've laughed at things that people are suffering in hell for. And make no mistake about it, that, that's the weight with which we should take these things. It's not a laughing matter. These are weighty, serious things. I mean, look at verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Sin is deathly serious. Those who are sexually immoral and impure and covetous, they, they don't go to heaven. That's how serious these things are. Now, don't, don't misunderstand this. What Paul is not saying is that if you're a saint and then you commit an act of sexual immorality, you lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Or that if you uh, have an impure thought or you're covetous in your heart after you've been saved, that then you lose your inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. What he's getting at here is that those who are, who are living in unrepentant sin, who are sexually immoral and impure and covetous, that those are marks of someone who has not trusted in Jesus. Those are marks of someone who is not going to heaven. But those who have been changed by Jesus, those who do have an inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ, that's not who we are anymore. These are not things that are proper for us anymore. This is what we were saved from. Yeah, we were sexually immoral and impure and covetous. That, that's who we were, but God saved us. He changed us, and so it's not proper for us to continue living as if Jesus never changed us. It's not proper for us to live and engage in those things for which the wrath of God comes. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things... The wrath of God comes upon the sons 
of disobedience. Don't listen to voices in and around you that would cause you to take sin lightly. Don't listen to influences that would cause you to to make light of sin. These sins are serious as the wrath of God. And, And this is another place where we have to watch out for entertainment. In our culture, there are regularly, in fact, we're bombarded with entertainment that has as its express purpose removing stigma from certain forms of sexual immorality. And it does so not by confronting us boldly by saying, hey, you should engage in sexual immorality. No, it does it by making it look attractive and making it look lovable and making sure, oh, that's, come on, it's, it's not that big of a deal. It does it by getting us to laugh at jokes we shouldn't laugh at and humor we shouldn't laugh at. It, it, it comes in in a deceptive way. And if we're not careful, we will be guilty of this verse of letting culture deceive us with empty words and make us think that these things that actually deserve the wrath of God are really something that are acceptable. But these things are serious as the wrath of God, and we need to make sure that our values are shaped by God's word, not by the influences of voices around us. So as we consider Paul's charge here to saints to walk in the purity that God has brought us to, Let me just ask you these questions. Do you take purity seriously? Where is there a hint of sexual immorality in your life? Where does sexual immorality, maybe it doesn't have a grip on your heart, but where does it have a foot in the door of your heart? Are you flirting with something that you shouldn't be flirting with, toying with something you shouldn't be toying with? I would urge you, by the grace of God, as those who have been saved by the grace of God, called to holiness, I would urge you to put to death even the faintest hint of sexual immorality in your life. These things are not proper for us as saints, and God has given us grace to put these things to death. Do you talk about sex carefully or carelessly? Are you joking about or laughing at things that Jesus died for? Are you allowing voices to influence the way you think about sin and make you take sin lightly? Are you allowing yourself to start accepting what God clearly forbids in Scripture? If that's the case, I would encourage you, I would urge you to go to Scripture and have your mind renewed so that our values would always be shaped by God's word, God's word alone. That's walk in purity. Second, we're to walk in light. Walk in light. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The reason we don't disobey along with the sons of disobedience here uh, in verse 6 is what Paul called them. The reason we don't disobey is because that's not who we are anymore. You might remember last week, uh, the main point we looked at is be who you are in 
Christ. You could probably call this sermon, Be Who You Are, Part 2, because Paul continues this theme that who we are in Christ ought to change how we live as those who are in Christ. We were darkness, and notice he, he doesn't just say we were in darkness. We were darkness in our deepest being, in our soul. We were darkness. We were spiritually blind. We were dark, but now we are light in the Lord, in the Lord. And that's important because we don't have light in and of ourselves. It's only from Jesus. We have light in the Lord. Jesus called himself in the gospels, the light of the world. And he calls us the light of the world because we are reflectors of his light, just like the moon reflects the light of the sun. We are light in the Lord. And so we should walk as children of light. Well, what does it look like to walk as children of light? He tells us in verses 9 and 10. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Good and right and true. This is who God has made us if we are in Christ. Back in chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul told us that we are God's workmanship. If we have trusted in Jesus, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then back in verse 24 of chapter 4, Paul urged us to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Good and right and true. This is who God has made us to be if we are in Christ. We are to walk in his goodness. We are to live out a righteous life. We are to live in a way that accords with his truth. This is what Paul says is pleasing to the Lord. This is who we are if we are in Christ. These are the works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, what about the works we used to do? We'll look at verses 11 and 12. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So we're not to do the things that we used to do before we knew Jesus. They're shameful, Paul says. They're they're not something that we should even have a hint of. Instead, what we are to do is to expose those works of darkness. Expose them for what they were. When we were in darkness, before we knew Jesus, we were doing what we thought was best for us. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, we were responsible. The Bible says that the law is written on our hearts as image bearers of God. But in the darkness, in a sense, we, we thought we were doing what was best for us. But if we have been brought into light, if we have been made light in the Lord, we have no reason to walk in that deception anymore. As if we don't know what is actually pleasing to the Lord. As if we don't know what God has called us to if we are in Christ. So instead of engaging in the works that we used to do, these sins of darkness that were part of our former manner of life, no, instead, we were to expose those works for what they are, expose them for the fact that they're rebellion against God. 
Expose them for the fact that they're actually harmful to other people. Expose them for the fact that they're actually the enemy of human flourishing, but that following God's will is the way to experience true joy. Following God's will is the way to truly help others. Now, we have to be careful, though, because, yes, we want to expose the works of darkness. That's what Paul calls us to. But we don't want to expose sin in self-righteousness. No, we, we expose sin for what it is because we're saved, because we've been rescued from that. And we want to see others rescued from the grip of sin as well. We don't want to expose just to judge other people. No, we want to expose sin for what it is to help other people. We want to see that their sin is, is causing them to live it separated from God. We want to expose the fact that sin is serious as the wrath of God. That sin is deathly serious. And as we expose these works of darkness by our shining the light of Christ through goodness and righteousness and truth, our hope is that more and more people will come into the light, that they'll see through the light of Christ the ways of darkness and, and how they are actually the enemy of joy and, and that they'll see Christ in his hope and his love and his grace. That's what Paul gets at here in verses 13 and 14. He says, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. As those who were in darkness, but have now been made light in the Lord. What our goal is in exposing the works of darkness is what our hope is, is that we would see more and more people hear these words, awake, O sleeper, that we would see more and more people who are spiritually dead hear the voice of God saying to them, arise from the dead, that more and more people who are currently in darkness would have the light of Christ shine on them just as the light of Christ shone on us. We're to walk in light. And so I would ask you, are, are you walking as a child of light? Are you shining Christ's light in goodness and righteousness and truth? Are you indulging in the deeds of darkness or are you exposing deeds of darkness? Are you showing the world Christ's way is actually better, that Christ's way is actually the good life? Are you showing them how damaging and how dangerous sin is? We are to walk in light as those who have been saved by the grace of Jesus, transformed by the grace of Jesus. Though we were darkness, we have been made light in the Lord. So we are to walk in purity, walk in light, and then third, walk in wisdom. Paul expresses this idea of walking in wisdom with three different contrasts. He says, walk not as unwise, but as wise. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So these three contrasts, let's look at each one of them. First, in verses 15 and 16, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time 
because the days are evil. Calls us to walk wise. This idea of wisdom has come up several times already in the letter of Ephesians. We read one section this morning in chapter 1 about God's wisdom. If you would turn back to chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. What we see in Ephesians is that God's wisdom is tied to God's plan of redemption. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1. He's talking about God's grace, and he says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. So this idea of wisdom, God expressed his wisdom by making known his plan, what he is up to in the world. Now flip over to chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul's talking about his ministry to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he says that God has given him the ministry to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The idea of wisdom is closely tied to God's plan for the world, his plan of redemption. For us to walk in wisdom, walking in wisdom is walking in a way that recognizes our place in God's story. Wisdom, walking in wisdom is walking in a way that recognizes our place in God's story. See, so far, In this passage, what we've been looking at are categories of right and wrong, or literally darkness and light, where there is clear right, clear wrong, clear good, clear evil. But not all of life, not every decision we make, can we find a a verse that clearly says what we ought to do. Now, some things we don't need wisdom for. Some things are just simply right and wrong, you know? I don't have to pray about whether or not to murder someone, no. That's clearly wrong, and so I don't need wisdom for that. I just need to know that's wrong, and I'm not going to do it. But when it comes to something like, well, which job should I take? Where should I go to college? Those are things that there isn't a verse for. There isn't a clear right and wrong. They require wisdom. And one of the ways that God has given us wisdom, one of the things that he would call us to, is recognizing our place in God's story. So here's an example. So say you have the question, okay, which, which job should I take, right? That's not something that there's necessarily a right or wrong unless, you know, there's always exceptions. But in most cases, there's not a clear right and wrong, right? But maybe one job would take you to a place where uh, there's a, gospel preaching church within a close distance. But then the other job would take you to a place that the nearest church is an hour away and they don't even preach the true gospel. Well, if we know what God's grand plan is, if we know his will is to make us more like Christ, then what wisdom would call us to 
is to say, okay, which one of these options would put me in a position to be made more like Christ? Which one of these options would fit my life more into God's plan for the whole world? And specifically God's plan for me to make me more like Jesus. Because neither one of those are sin in and of themselves. But what wisdom allows us to do is to take principles of God's word, take principles like God's grand story, what he's up to in the world, and ask, how do we live our lives, not as the authors of our own story, but as a piece in God's story? What is God up to in the world? And then that helps us walk in wisdom in life. When we go beyond just matters of rules or clear right and wrong, because God did not intend for us to be rule followers. He intends for us to be Christ followers. And so we're not just following a set of do's and don'ts. We're following a person, a savior who came to this world to not only redeem individuals, but to restore humanity. And as we ask, what is God up to in the world? As we desire to walk in wisdom, we will ask, what is our place in God's story? The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. We see that in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So if wisdom is walking in a way that recognizes our place in God's story, foolishness is living as if we are the authors of our own destiny as if our lives are just blank slates for us to write our own story. But the world is not our playground. The world is God's arena for his glory. And so, as those who are children of light, as those who are living in days that are evil, as those who desire to walk in wisdom, we must understand what the will of the Lord is. We must understand God's plan in the world and ask, how can we fit our lives into his plan? Then look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Wisdom involves giving control to the Holy Spirit. For to walk in wisdom, we must be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul specifically says here, to not get drunk with wine, but don't get hung up on just the one vice that he mentions here in this text. What's really at stake here is the issue of control. Because with drunkenness, the, the lie of drunkenness is, is it gives either pleasure or an escape in exchange for control of yourself. So maybe that's your vice. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's a beverage Beyond just one particular vice, what do you give control? What do you allow to control your life? What do you allow to control your life in exchange for temporary pleasure? Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe it's a hobby. But what do you go to for a temporary escape in exchange for control of yourself? What do you allow to control your life? Because what God would call us to, what wisdom entails, what the good life of following Jesus entails is being controlled, not by any of anything else, but the Holy Spirit. 
In fact, if we're going to walk in wisdom, if we're going to walk in purity, if we're going to walk in light, if we're going to be children of light in these evil days, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his power. We need his presence. We need his fullness living in us. And so if we are to walk in wisdom, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, Paul says there will be three results. Singing, thanksgiving, and submission. Look at verse 19. He says back in 18, be filled with the Spirit. And then in 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you're a singer? Now, you may not have musical talent. You may be completely tone deaf. But if you're a Christian, you're a singer. Because according to this text, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, songs come out. Now, I don't mean like spontaneously, like, you know, like when the Little Mermaid got her voice back or something like that. I just, I, what I mean is a heart controlled by the Holy Spirit is marked by praise to God and songs that build up one another. God, God did not just give us singing for, for entertainment or as some sort of a secondary thing. No, God gave us singing for sanctification. He intends for us to be made more like Jesus as a result of singing. In singing together, we have a tangible expression of love for God and love for neighbor. Love for God because in singing, we engage our whole person in expressing praise to God. But also love for a neighbor. Did you, did you notice that Paul, talking about singing, says, addressing one another. God gave us singing. He intends for us to sing together so that we would build one another up. Our songs are not only to the Lord. Our, our songs are to one another. Your neighbor needs your song. I saw a tangible uh, demonstration of just how much I often need my neighbor's song. Uh, while I was traveling in college, I was part of a band, a, a music group uh, that went to various churches. And one weekend, we had been scheduled for uh, months to go to this church in North Carolina. And when the week finally came that we were going to be traveling down there to lead worship at this church, we got the news that the worship pastor of that church, his wife had died suddenly and tragically in a bicycle accident. And so we come to this church, and it's just, of course, a, a broken congregation. Sad morning. And that Sunday morning, that worship pastor came with his children, with his family, to the worship service, and we were leading worship. And I'll never forget looking out on the congregation, looking at this man who the day before had buried his wife, the mother of his children, and from the bottom of his heart, he was singing, great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. Do you know what that did 
or my faith in God in that moment is I saw this man singing a song of faith from his heart. He may not have even realized how much he was addressing me in that moment because looking at him and seeing just that pure, inexplicable trust in a loving, perfect God told my heart, I can trust God for anything. I can trust that God with my life. Your neighbor needs your song. As we experience the fullness of God, outcome, songs of praise to God, songs of encouragement to one another, and then in verse 20, out comes thanksgiving. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we experience the, the fullness of God, the Holy Spirit in us, this God who is all wise and all loving, this God who is sovereign and wise, our hearts will grow no matter what we face in thanksgiving. Our hearts will always and for everything thank God the Father. Because we may not understand why God has allowed something to come into our lives. We may not understand what God is up to in our specific situation. But we have been shown the wisdom of God and what he is up to in the world. And we know that he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so as we experience the fullness of this God, we will from our mouths, utter the words of faith. Thank you. Thank you. And then lastly, in verse 21, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, more and more we will count others as more significant than ourselves. As we are continually following and trusting in the one who came not to be served, but to serve, the more we follow his example and we're filled with the fullness of this God, the more we will prefer one another, count others more significant than ourselves. And Paul unpacks this idea of submission in the following verses in the rest of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. And that's what we're going to look at next week, three different relationships that all involve this submission that comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. But as we look at these verses that we've considered just in this last moment, let me ask, are you walking in wisdom? Are you walking in such a way that your life looks like it's part of God's story? Or are you living in such a way that looks like you're the author of your own story? Are you giving control of your life to something or someone other than the Holy Spirit? Or is your life marked by the evidence of being controlled by the Spirit? Is your mouth filled with praise to God? Is your mouth filled with encouragement to your brothers and sisters? Is your heart filled with thanksgiving? Is your heart filled with an attitude that wants to submit to one another, that wants to put others first. 
May it be that as those who have been transformed by the grace of God, we depend on God's grace, yes, for forgiveness, but also for power, for power to live as lights in a dark world, for power to live pure, even as we are surrounded by those who are living in immorality or impurity. May we lean on the grace of God to walk in light and walk in wisdom and walk in purity, filled with the Holy Spirit for strength, filled with the Holy Spirit, thanking God, filled with the Holy Spirit, experiencing the joy of the fullness of God. May we watch our walk as we desire to live our lives for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the grace of God, that your grace that has transformed us, your grace that has saved us, that has brought us forgiveness, and Lord, your grace that calls us into a new life, a new walk. I pray that we would take the words of your scripture seriously, and Lord, that this would be a joy, that we would know that there is nothing we have left to do to earn your favor because Christ has already earned it for us. And so, Lord, we work, we walk, not as those who are trying to earn something from you, but Lord, as those who are so grateful for your lavish grace on us. Lord, we want to live for your glory. And I pray that that would be the prayer of our hearts as we think about this text, as we think about our lives. Lord, would our hearts have a desire to honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.